This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How are we doing? Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the very wise Simon Belanger. I am pumped for this episode. We have lots of good topics and some listener questions as well. It's just been a while since we did some listener questions. So, you know, what's on your mind is probably on the minds of many other listeners, and we will get to that. How you doing, sir? What's going on? Um, I, I fled the country again. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> you came back, what, a Whoops. week and then saw it was cold uh, in Canada and then, okay, I'm gone to the US in Florida. Just enjoy the warm weather. Oh, I'm such a baby now. No, you know what? Like, I, I'm such a fan of winter sports. I, I really do love it. Um, but, you know, my folks are down here and so if I don't come down and visit them, then I'll never see them. And plus... You know what I like more than all of the winter sports? Hitting a, hitting a golf ball around the around 18 holes. So uh, we're going to do that too. All right. So I'm going to kick today's show off with a segment called Types of Luck. And you know how I like to do, relate it back to investing through analogies and, and how you can create your own luck. In 2007, Andreessen Horowitz wrote a piece called Luck and the Entrepreneur, the four types of luck they discussed and how it relates to entrepreneurship because Andreessen Horowitz is a very, very well-known venture capital firm out of Silicon Valley founded by Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. So these are the, the two guys from Andreessen Horowitz and they wrote this piece that I thought was particularly interesting and I've been meaning to do this segment on the pod. So there the four types of luck they describe are one blind luck, two motion, three recognized good fortune, and number four directed motion. So let's go through these and what they can mean for investors because they're you're kind of uh, abstract in the way that they're they're described here. So first, number one, blind luck. This is just completely random chance. Blind luck. You threw a dart at the board of stocks you could pick, and the one you pick goes up. It's kind of like, you know, 2020, <laughs> when the market found its bottom in the what, June, uh, June of 2020, it didn't matter what you bought. The junkier you bought, it went up. And so investors thought they were really skilled. But they're probably just lucky. Would you agree with that? Like most of that had very little skill and mostly pure luck. Is that yeah? Fair I think assessment? that's a fair assessment, and especially for those who just started investing, I think it it was a bad thing for them to be honest. Uh, just thinking that they yeah yeah. It's like when you go to the casino yeah. and win on your first night at the casino. That's usually a bad experience for the your, you, for your future exactly because you think you can replicate that. You become uh, you know overconfident in your skills, and I think I've mentioned it before. Like one of my well, my first investment in stock when I was eighteen went to zero. And it's one of the best thing that's ever happened to me because I didn't make that mistake later on with larger sums of money. With yeah, exactly. Money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so really short term stock picking, you know, just trying to see if a stock will go up in the next six minutes is purely blind luck and has nothing to do with skill. Um, and so blind luck, the first type of luck in this piece called luck in the entrepreneur is right place, right time without any pre-existing effort to make sure you set up yourself for success. So that's number one. Number two is called motion. All right. And so quote here, a certain basic level of action stirs up the pot, brings in random ideas that will collide and stick together in fresh combinations. Let's chance operate. So you're you know, you're putting more pieces in uh, in there to collide and letting chance do its thing, letting luck come about. Um, this is bringing you luck based on pure activity level. And so 
you're actively trying to have more chances of colliding with luck. You're putting yourself in a situation for luck to strike. Um, let's say now you're spinning that same wheel of stocks, but instead of it, just a random list of stocks, maybe you've put together a list of research stocks. You're putting in a base level of effort to win. Um, but the motion is still random. And therefore, a lot of luck is still involved. But at least you're putting the you're you're putting to to quote entries north fresh combinations and letting chance operate. Um, any thoughts? No, I just kind of thinking from a dating perspective, right? Uh, no, but it's a good to <laughs> me. Like it's also a good it's a good, good way to put really it. Really good one. Yeah. You know, if you never put yourself out there, if you're single, you're trying to meet someone. If you go, you know, you go out and do stuff. You go on dating applications. Like you're putting yourself out there. You may still not find the right person, but you have better chances of finding the right person than doing absolutely nothing and complaining that you're not finding the right person. Dude, that was so good. Uh, yes, totally. Dating is a perfect application of this, right? Like, you need to have some le- base level of motion to achieve any sort of result instead of just going, wow, I got the same result as I have previously, whether it's your portfolio or, or dating. You know, if you're, if you're not putting out any motion, you are relying purely on luck number one, which is blind luck. And you can't influence that at all. All right, number three is called recognizing good fortune. This one is about having a unique and differing perspective. It's you recognize you are the one to take advantage of this opportunity. You, you recognize good fortune as it comes across your uh, across your plate. Luck has given you the opportunity, but your preparation has given you the ability to act on it when others cannot. They don't have your unique perspective, so they don't they don't even realize it's a good idea or a good opportunity when luck presents itself to them. Here's a, just a random example I'm coming across. The year is 2006, you know. You are a retail floor worker at Lululemon. You realize this company's operating on a, just a different level. Um, the demand from customers is relentless and everywhere in the mall is dead, but not here at Lulu. You know, it's a slow day at the mall. There's no one at New York Fries and there's no one at, at uh, Nordstrom, but here at Lululemon, things are buzzing. Okay. And the stock now has IPO'd and it's getting smoked post IPO because they virtually IPO'd right into the great financial crisis. The Lululemon stock loses 75% of its value from, from IPO to trough. Your store alone during that time, Simone, you're just a floor worker, has tripled since then uh, in just the same store. You know, your manager comes out and says, great work, everyone. You know, the past year, uh, sales have tripled and we're doing fantastic. Great job, everyone. Here's, here's a slice of pizza, you know, <laughs> here's your slice of pizza. Um, you buy Lululemon stock because you have a unique perspective, which is differing from the grain of Wall Street. And you go on to make 75 times your money if you still held it. This is a recognizing good fortune. Luck presented itself and you had a differing, a differing opinion and perspective than the grain. Yeah, and that's probably the hardest thing to do in investing because you're you're going against you know the consensus, the talking heads, whatever it is, and because you're seeing, you're analyzing, you're taking a different approach, you're seeing something that they're not seeing, you're just taking a different angle, and you put your money where you think it's right to put it, but it's you know. It's not easy to do because you have to make sure you're right. Because if you're not, then clearly, you know, it's it can be hard because you can say, well, oh, I should have listened, you know, to the consensus. So it's definitely something that's not easy to do. Uh, but it also present like that's usually where you'll make most of the money is when you invest in things that the market's not really seeing the true value or maybe down for whatever reason on it. Exactly. And that's, that's the main point, right? And, and 
don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't uh, purely make investment decisions based on anecdotal experiences. That is a terrible way to go. And so don't don't take my analogy out of context here. But the the important part is you had a differing perspective and the talking heads during the great financial crisis said, sell, 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 right? The world is ending. The banks are collapsing. Sell, 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 sell. Um, it was their favorite word in, in, in that period. So um, that's number three, recognizing good fortune. Last on the list, number four, directed motion. All right. Now, the previous types of luck are fairly random in terms of them presenting themselves to you. The first one is just blind luck. The second one is, you know, you at least put in some base effort for luck colliding with you. And the third is luck presenting itself and you have a unique perspective on how to take advantage of it. But number four is directed motion in encountering good fortune. And now motion is not random. You have put yourself in a position to collide with luck more frequently because you know it's like skating to where the puck is going. Like, oh, Wayne Gretzky seems to be super lucky that the puck keeps showing up on his stick. No, it, he had directed motion. He's creating his own luck. This is where opportunities begin to present themselves directly because of the effort being done or the decisions made on where to go. Um, some ideas here for portfolio management. Think creating a proper investment checklist. Think creating a proper idea generation framework. Think listening to this podcast, duh. Um, and think using the right tools and tech to analyze stocks and, and stay on top of your portfolio. Another shameless plug here, stratosphere.out. That was two in, in two in one sentence. There's a great reason investors have checklist frameworks and tools to manage their investing style because they are prepared and directing motion towards encountering more good fortune than the average person. Another way this relates to investing is the longer your time horizon, the more sophisticated skills you gain, and the more, the more all of a sudden you seem to run into that luck thing. And the more portfolio decomposition comes from actual directed motion than just yeah, and I'm not surprised that they, uh, you know, Anderson Horowitz would have written this because, you know, when you think about especially venture capital investing, you know, it's very rarely something that they'll be able to exit within six months or a year, right? They're usually much longer time frames in terms. It's usually seven year capital at the minimum. Exactly. And if you're investing in the public markets, you can also have a similar approach. And that's what we tend to do, you and I, is we have a longer term approach because we find that it creates some opportunities. The market is forward looking, obviously, but the market tends to look out a year, year and a half. I mean, we're seeing it with, you know, I think we've talked about a lot macro in the past couple of years, but I think it's a perfect example, right? You'll see the market kind of project one year out where interest rates will be, and then they kind of forget beyond that. I'm not talking about bond markets, like more the stock market. Um, you see them project and then it's kind of like they have blinders and they can't see beyond that. And that goes for a lot of companies. And in the previous episode, I talk about retail issuing some not great guidance for 2023. And one thing I did mention is it could present some interesting opportunities. Obviously, if you do your research, if you're looking at a long-term time frame like i own home depot they issued pretty weak guidance for 2023 i think home depot is going to be a great business for years to come yes there's some headwinds in the near term but i think personally it could represent some pretty good op buying opportunities if markets really putting a discount on that business short term yeah right like year and a half is like it seems generous yeah, yeah. towards dude there was a hilarious earnings call. Oh, I'm forgetting which one I was listening to. It was a hilarious earnings call I was listening to. 
Oh, I got to find it. Uh, it was pointed out by Alex Morris on Twitter. And so I tuned in to check it out, this company. Anyways, the, the long and short of it is the analyst asked a question about what quarter next quarter is going to look like. And the management team is like, like, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to really know right now, but long-term X, Y, and Z. And the, and the analyst replied, my models don't care about that far out. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're such a, like, you're such a little kid who only thinks about their, like, no one cares about your spreadsheets, dude, like get over it. And the reality is, is that analyst estimates are probably only looking, you know, that far out with, with completeness and that's the mandate and public markets have to the the and the participants in public markets have the incentive structure structured towards them to not think long term because your clients knocking on the door uh you know incentive structures are, are quarter to quarter you know i got to make sure my clients don't leave me in the next month so i got to act short term the incentive structures are not always lined up for long-term opportunities. And with that, you are going down the scale of blind luck, not directed motion. And if you can situate your portfolio more and more towards recognizing good fortune and directed motion, then base motion and blind luck I think you'll do yeah, quite well. No, that's well put. And and honestly, this kind of it's a good segment or a good leeway into one of the listener questions we got. So from Nils, who taught, I was asking a question about analysts. Um, so his question was, I'd love to hear you guys do a segment on modeling. What would happen if you follow consensus analyst ratings free, freely available on a basket of stocks? And thanks for all the great work you do. So it's an interesting question in terms of modeling. I mean, it can be quite consuming and my take on analysts, as you'll see is uh you know i i think it with a grain of salt for the most part um so first analysts are notoriously biased and positive in their ratings i mean this if you follow if you've been investing for some times and you see these analysts ratings um they tend to not be very negative when they clearly should be sometimes. <laughs> it's just kind of funny to see it. I'm not saying that all of them are, but a lot of them are. That's because if they are too negative and their relationship with a company sours, it can impact the access that they have with company ex executives. And if you think about it, a company will be much more willing to give an analyst time with an executive if the analyst has typically been really positive or on good terms with a company and vice versa. So especially since publicly listed companies can get hundreds, if not thousands for the larger ones of requests each year from analysts to attend events or have interview with executives. So the companies have to pick if your company, you know, are you going to pick the one that put a sell rating on your stock? Or are you going to invite the one that put a neutral or buy rating on your stock? So, you know, the, the, the incentives are a bit you know, you have to keep that in mind. I think where there's more value from analysts is what they actually say about the company. Oftentimes, they'll actually provide some yes. good insights. But the actual ratings, um, I think, you know, I'll stay nice, but I think they're, you know, a lot of them are just out to lunch. I don't know. Before I continue, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that's good. I mean, I mean we don't mean to like sound like we're, or we're calling the analyst community no. Useless. I just think that the the buy and sell ratings are basically useless. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 yes, it's the value of their insights on what the the bull case and the bear case is, usually laid out right at the top, what they think's coming down the pipeline, some interested one-off items that are in there, they'll they'll kind of like point that out and spell that out. They understand the business extremely well. The analysts in the com in the community are such useful pieces of this game, so useful. But the question of ratings, I think, uh, should be taken with a grain of salt. Um, I just grabbed some data from CNBC, and it says that only about five percent of com of ratings 
are sell rates. Oh, yeah. And I'll give some examples, 5%. too. 5%. Yes. It's... So, so if the market is... If the market is the market, that must make that, you know, a certain amount of companies are buys and certain amount of companies are sells. And certainly more than 5% of companies are going to underperform the market. So extrapolate that with what you No, exactly. And there's also potential incentive for analysts to be positive or negative about the stock. So a buy side analyst, which means an analyst that works for an institution or mutual fund, for example, may issue a buy rating for a company that's already held by the fund or institution or a sell rating if they sold it recently. So there, there is like, you know, some kind of weird incentives here. I know there's been more regulations in the US uh, towards that in the past, I think, decade or so i think it was following the financial crisis now a sell side analyst on the other end will typically sell the research to buy side groups and oftentimes cover a group of stocks industries or sector it's often in their best interest to be on good terms with the companies they cover kind of going back to what i said and the last thing i'll say before i give some examples here of like kind of head scratching kind of analyst rating is that you know i listen to conference calls a whole lot and a lot of analysts will ask some really good and sometimes hard questions to the management group so like you said i'm not trying to say that they're not good or anything like that some are just absolutely amazing it's just a whole rating thing um especially for beginning investor i think it's really misleading and a lot of people will rely on that when they really shouldn't um instead of actually reading the analyst uh, overview of the business or projections or whatever it is now i took some I think it's five or six example here. So the first one is Google or Alphabet. Um, I thought it was interesting because all the chatter about ChatGPT and you know the potential disruption. So I took just two sites that kind of amalgamated the the buy and sell ratings, and you know there was no sell ratings for Alphabet. Which, you know, I agree, I wouldn't sell it, I own it, but at the same time, I'm surprised to not see one when there's potential disruptions for Alphabet. Uh, Because who's going to be the analyst that marks one of the greatest businesses ever as a sell? Mm -hmm. There's no chance you put your neck on the line. You know, you you don't get a promotion from getting it right. Exactly. And you can get only downside career risk for marking Alphabet as a sell. Because you'd be the only one and there's no upside for you in your career by doing that. Follow the incentives. Yeah, exactly. And we saw, right, if you're just looking at the big short or, you know, the 2008 financial crisis, there were people that were sounding the alarm before it happened. And even some banks and financial institutions, the U.S. specifically being exposed. And for the most part, they were laughed out of the room. Yeah. So that's a good example. Even... I'm not surprised to see a big tech name like this to be yeah. so high no. consensus, uh, consensus buy because they're they're incredible companies. But uh, some of these next ones, yeah. So DraftKings, it's one that we've talked about on earnings, and it's just a market that's really difficult to profitability and acquiring customers. The cost is really high, and the customer loyalty. I mean, it's not that hard to create an account. Um, so I did it for the Super Bowl. I use I think uh, Bet three sixty. I got, uh, you know, I won my bets and then I also got an extra like 300 bucks for future betting. So it's kind of nice, but it just gives you like, <laughs> yeah, that cost of acquisition. Yeah, is I don't think they'll make high. much money with me, but DraftKings. So out of 23 analysts rating on one side, there was only three strong sell. The other ones were uh, holds moderate or strong buy. And then another side out of 33, there was no sell, but the underperform, uh, which I always find a bit funny, which I guess is kind of a sell. If you look at it, it's a soft way of saying it. So there were some underperform, but it's always funny. It's like it's basically without sell it, it or yeah, it, it, it's sell it. But if I'm wrong, it's OK. No, exactly. Um, one that I think you'll kind of get a kick out of is Intel. So one side had 27 analysts rating um, only 
six had either a moderate sell or a strong sell. The rest, it was majority hold or a couple were also buy. The other side, very similar. There was, I think, only one selling it was sell. Uh, half, uh, about a third selling underperform and more than half saying buy or strong buy, which makes me think either they want to stay on good terms with Intel or they have no idea in terms of what kind of trouble Intel might be in. Uh, what your, what's your take on that one? I read this as hold equals sell. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Which it really... That's how, that's how I've always read analyst ratings no, it, is buy, buy, strong buy equals buy, buy equals hold and hold equals sell. <laughs> which is too bad, right? Because if you're starting and investing, this is really misleading. This is not something you would know if you're starting to invest. No. You'd say, oh, you know, like I'm seeing Intel. I don't know too much about the business, but I'm familiar with the processors. I have it in my laptop, whatever it is. Um, you know, it's been a, like since I can remember, it's been there. Like it pays a dividend. Why not? Right. The analysts seem to be, you know, saying it's OK. So that's why I really don't like about yeah, that. You interpret it as like, hold this juicy dividend for a while. It won't get cut. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's like how I would read it for Intel. And and obviously that was a bad no, idea. No, exactly. Um, I had Algonquin on here, kind of similar story. There's a couple, just one strong sell out of nine on one site, and then the rest is all hold or buys. And then the other side is mostly hold and some buys. Um, Algonquin is facing some issues. We talked about it. They cut their dividend. Um, I mean, from my perspective, there's some really serious questions about like having just the right management in place uh, with some of the moves and you know they've kind of created this problem and now they're expected to you know going forward rectify everything so that one a little bit of a head scratcher but again i think if you look at it from a hold perspective then it's probably telling you to to sell it <laughs> so that's a majority of it and the last one that one is really I mean, yeah, I guess you have to look at it against from the whole perspective, but Carvana. So we talked about Carvana, which is essentially on the brink of bankruptcy or needing financing one way or another. And on one site, 23 analysts, uh, there was 19 holds, two strong sales, two strong buys. On the other side, there was 14, which was evenly split between strong buy, which I do not understand, buy and hold. So that just tells you I don't know. Like this one is really the one that I really don't get, to be honest. Yeah. This is where it all kind of falls apart, right? Yeah. Because some of these might be outdated um, and they're still being aggregated. And so a lot of these sites don't show that. I, I, what I will say, a quick, easy plug is we do aggregate this stuff on Stratosphere, but we show it by date, which investment bank and which analyst as well, like their name, um, when they issued it, and and their estimates for top line revenue, EBITDA, and 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 uh, and earnings per share. So that's like a little bit more easy to extrapolate because there's a lot more holds recently. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot more sales recently, and so be careful with these aggregated pie chart type type uh type metrics i mean yeah that, that company clearly is just probably not going to exist in the future <laughs> and so holding on yeah. to it's probably not a smart move yeah and the reason i use this is because i wanted to aggregate it in an easy way right to, to do a sum up so yeah. that was well that's how they show yeah. them on 95 percent exactly sites, so. and that's and i think my biggest gripe i think i've said it more than once but i'm just thinking about someone who's getting started and they see this yeah. and how misleading it can be. And that's the biggest thing that really irks me because you and I and most of our listeners probably, you know, they would see that and, you know, not bat an eye too much or not think too much about it. But someone who's just starting, I think it can really point them into the wrong direction because they might see Carvana and think, oh, you know, that looks like a good value play. They're being... You know, pretty, you know, it's a disruptor in the space and, and all that stuff without actually digging into it. Where it's like, you know, I'm holding on to this. It reaffirms bias for a lot of people, too. It's like, I'm holding on to this dog of a stock. I probably want to sell it. The business is deteriorating. But, you know, nine out of 10 analysts are marking it as a hold. One of them is marking it as a sell. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, 
Well, 90% of them think I should hold it. Uh, and I think I should hold it. I don't, you know, uh, you know, biases are kicking in the reaffirming of the biases. And so, yeah, don't put too much weight on this is a good segment because I think everyone has struggled with this uh, the first time they open up a brokerage account. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So anyway, sorry if I didn't fully answer your question. I took a different angle, but it's not really something we've talked about and I thought would uh, bring value to people. Totally. Another one I think would bring a lot of value to people is question from literally everyone ever on our emails. How many stocks should you own? Um, you know, I can just kind of wing this. I'll, I'll say now, for me, the answer is 15 plus or minus a few. Um, and I've actually just re- very recently, and you'll notice on jointci.com where both of us every single month start to uh, disclose our portfolios. And for the first time ever in the March update, you can go check it out, jointci.com, it's $9 a month, is I actually have a list of every company and the percentage own and another table of this, like, this is how I think about my portfolio because I consider Constellation and the spinoffs as one one position. You know, uh, topic is Constellation and the newly... Uh, uh, March 26 or whatever, when Lumine Group comes into my brokerage account, I, I, I'm i not like, oh, shoot, now I'm at 22 holdings, you know, like, that's not the way I'm thinking about it. And so I've started including that on my jointci.com updates. So the number, if you break it down, like Visa and MasterCard, I think as a 10% position combined, it's the same, same exact investment thesis, a duopoly on the best business model ever. And so I get down to about 15 investment ideas. Um, some people are cool with less than 10 with a highly concentrated portfolio. You just got to know yourself. This is really personal. Um, you got to know those businesses have high conviction in them. I do have a particularly hard, I don't have a particularly hard stance on anything less than 20. I think that that is your opinion, what you're comfortable with, what you're willing to own. I do think when we're getting into the 30, 35 plus individual company names, at that point, if you're a self-directed investor, I do have a hot take that you should probably just go buy an index fund and hang out on a beach, not spend another <laughs> waking minute on it because you're going to get similar to index type returns with a lot of work and, and mental brain power. That's, that's my take, basically. Yeah, I, I try to stay around 15. It's more for just time management. Um, I think for the most part, that's a number I'm comfortable with, with keeping up in terms of businesses. Cause more than that, I just find, you know, if there was a small position, cause I tend, you know, I, it's easy to lose track of it. Like not lose track, but you kind of, you know, it's not a big thing. So it's easy to just kind of forget a little bit. Um, I think I'm like you when it gets too high, it just becomes really, it's harder to keep stay on top of all of them um i don't know what number might be too high um maybe it's more 50 40 50 in terms of maybe you should just own an index but again if you get i think below 10 uh which is fine but i think uh, personally if i ever get below 10 or even five definitely i would make sure that a good chunk of my portfolio is toward index funds to kind of balance that out because then it becomes really concentrated and if your thesis on one of the names let's say you have 10 names and just for simplicity it's equally weighted i mean one name performing really badly could have a pretty serious impact on your portfolio even more more obviously if you have five so i've said it before i love having a mixture of index funds and uh, stocks and it really depends i mean we've talked about it a little bit before but i think you know make sure you track your returns um if you're not beating the market and you're only picking stocks after you know five plus years maybe you'll you may want to invest with an index fund instead unless you really enjoy it and you're fine with underperforming uh but you know, it does take some time and, you know, just be true to yourself as well. So, um, yeah, if whatever works for you, but yeah, index funds are a great way to diversifying. And I think there's nothing wrong with having, you know, one way or the other or hybrid approach like I do it. Today, I'm at 17. Uh, if, if you group together, like 
in, in this new table that I use, like how I really think yeah. about my portfolio, which groups the constellation spinoffs and it groups the Brookfield names. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because you know, those, those asset management spinoff shares came into my brokerage and I sure as heck ain't selling them. Um, but it's not like, oh, now it's another name I got to worry about. Um, it's really, that's not how I'm thinking about it. Um, okay, on to, uh, do we got another yeah. listener question? Yeah, here? I think it's okay. the last one. And then, you know, wrapping it up, it's our third recording of the day. So I will try to, <laughs> you know, try not to babble too much as we answer this one. Uh, but, you know, it's been fun. So question from Drew here. Uh, I am 33 and I'm all about dividends. I ventured off into companies that were purely performance and never did well. I'm going to assume he's talking a bit more about growth stocks there, uh, but I'm I'm not quite sure. So I'm in this for the long term and it's been working. I, I think how I'm reading it is that he he was Drew, right? Drew. So he, yeah. yeah. Buying stocks uh purely off performance, basically like saying like trying to chase returns, yeah. like, Oh, this thing was up 50%. I'm going to, you know, in this last month, I'm going to hop in. That's yeah, how I'm reading be. it, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. But anyways, uh, so, um, so he's investing long-term. It's been, <laughs> all we know is it didn't work. Yeah, exactly. It didn't work out well. So what are your thoughts on yeah. TTP? Should I sell ZCN? So these are both, uh, ETFs and switch it all to TTP. Um, don't need similar stocks. Uh, in my two ETFs is my logic, or do I entertain a Vanguard S&P 500? So obviously, you know, I'll give my thoughts. This is not investment advice. Um, this is just kind of the things that, you know, I'd be thought thinking about about and I'll just put it you know you may want to look into this type of deal now first obviously you know looking at just working off performance uh, I mean past performance doesn't necessarily mean future performance whether you're looking at more steady compounders or grow companies of uh, like the past can give you some insights but you have to keep in mind that you know it doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. And we talked about the historical returns of the S&P 500, and it's been, what, around 9%, 10% per year historically. Um, You know, there's no guarantee it's going to continue like that for the next 20 years. So it is one point of data that you can use, but that's always something to remember is that, you know, what happened in the past, there's no guarantee it will happen in the future. And I think another thing that we touched about in terms of our allocation, the previous uh, segment that you did, is if you do invest in things that are a bit riskier, one of the greatest tools that you have as a self-directed investor is to allocate accordingly. Um, So you could decide to just take shots at companies that are a bit riskier, but just putting a smaller percentage. So that way, if it doesn't work out the way that you wanted, it doesn't hurt your portfolio as much. So it could be, you know, you want to take a shot at a company that you think is a bit riskier, you put one, 2%, whatever you feel comfortable with, knowing that if it doesn't go as planned, it's not too bad. And if it goes well, then it could actually still have a meaningful impact on your portfolio. Um, anything to add there before I, I go on? No, no. I, with these ETFs, I mean, we see some of these questions so frequently and they keep coming up. And my hot take here is don't overthink these things too much. Um, and, uh, you know, they're they're simple instruments for a reason. So, keep it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you mentioned you're 33 and all about dividends. That's fine. Uh, but you also have to realize that focusing only on dividend stocks could make you underperform the overall market. I say could, because, you know, it may also not be the case if we're, uh, you know, sometimes those stocks will perform the best, especially if there is a bear market because the total returns are actually being boosted and they're more stable companies. Um, but higher yielding companies will usually be more mature businesses. The good ones will be all or ones in trouble. Like it depends on how high yield. Well, we're yeah, well, here. that's my next you know, like point here. So the good ones okay. that are higher yielding will be concentrated in specific sectors so you'll you'll 
you won't have access to tech, for example, because if you go to a high yield tech name, you're going to get the dividend cut like Intel did about a few weeks ago. So that's just something yeah. to keep in mind. But the good ones will be in like banking, insurance, energy, utilities, telecoms, real estate. Those are kind of the maybe pharma, some of them, but even then it's usually a bit lower. Um, so you're not really giving yourself a whole lot of diversification with sectors. So something to keep in mind. And if you don't do sufficient due diligence you could end up investing in company that offer high yield because like you said they are in trouble which are also known as dividend traps so like i said think intel algonquin those are two names that recently cut their dividends i mean intel was yielding what five percent i think before they cut it or something like that i think more around there i think which i mean high single digits i don't think i think it was about mid yeah i think yeah i don't think it was that high Six, at least six. Yeah, I think, I mean, Before it was they here because they cut 60%. And I think now it's like one and a half, two percent that it's yielding. Anyways. Whatever yeah. it is, it was If high. you see anything <laughs> for, above for a company like, like that. 3% for tech play, um, it's there's definitely some questions to be asked. Like we, we looked, we just did a recording with uh, Dave from the Investing for Beginners and he talked about Texas Instrument, which is a really solid company, very mature, but has done a great job with free cash flow over time, smart investments, uh, pretty sustainable business. I think they, they yield a pretty high yield at close to 3%. And that's and that's more like an industrial's name. More yeah, than yeah, exactly. Like it could you, exactly you can make the case. But again, anything like above three percent for more tech, I would say be careful. Um, but having said that, at least just investigate. That's it. That's it. And there is also an argument to be made in dividend stocks, even if you underperform the market. And I've talked about that, but it's been a while. So it might be a good idea for people that could get nervous if there's a correction. So the case here is if... You know, I know there's people like that, that, you know, they'll own stocks and then there's a big correction and they panic and they sell a whole lot of their portfolio. Well, sometimes for those people having a dividend heavy portfolio, obviously good dividend companies, just having that dividend income coming in will prevent them from making a rash decision. And they may not outperform the market, but the fact that the dividend is there can actually prevent them from making a big mistake and selling when the market is really depressed. Um, so I think, you know, there's a case to be made there. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I've I've talked about that before. I mean, I wouldn't do that myself, but I know for some, it's actually something that they might want to consider because they could panic sell if there's a downturn. Yeah. I mean, th- this discussion is always nuanced, but what I will say with which uh, a stance I will be firm on is, and I'm going to ruffle some feathers, like for sure, especially dividend investors. You know, they're so down the rabbit hole of I only buy stocks that pay dividends. I used to be there. I used to be this. I think it comes with experience then and understanding capital allocation better as an investor. You realize that it is just one decision to return cash to shareholders, and it should not be the only decision. Let me help you. Let let me help you, okay? I'm a business owner. So say you're a business owner, okay? Some of you may be, some of you may not be, but regardless, you say you own the hot dog stand down the street, and you have a bunch of money left at the end of the quarter, and you got to figure out what to do. There is so many growth opportunities for your hot dog stand. You know, you can buy Joe's down the street. The guys over down at the at the Rogers Center are raking, and you think about you know, maybe even acquiring them or starting a new stand in one of those high traffic areas. That's going to require capital. And if you are the owner of that business or a shareholder in that business, the right decision may not be to use money to give that cash back to shareholders. It's going to get taxed and the the return, the IRR internally inside the business, the right move may be to acquire some of those hot dog stands, open up a new hot dog stand, or buy back equity in your own business because it's discounted. I've just opened so many different 
capital allocation decisions for the hot dog stand owner that do not involve giving money back to, you know, Joe down the street that gave him the initial $1,000 to start the first hot dog stand that owns shares in the company. That initial investor might not want dividends because they realize there's a huge opportunity still for the hot dog stands. This is no different. Don't complicate it. It is not magic money that flows from their account to your account. The actual intrinsic value, the enterprise value of the business goes down when there's cash distributions. It's not magic. It is just a decision of capital allocation. So once you kind of get that through your head, um, you can save yourself <laughs> underperformance. You said you're 33 and you're all about dividends. Hey, maybe don't be. <laughs> like, you know, you know, yeah, maybe don't be all about dividends and open your eyes to, uh, to, 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 to the decisions that can be done with money outside of distributing it back to shareholders. I know I just ruffled so many feathers, especially the, the dividend insane people here in Canada. Y'all are, y'all are insane and, you know, stay out of my DMs. <laughs> so it's at Bredo Capital if you want to let them know <laughs> how you feel on Twitter. Um, no, no, I, I obviously, you know, my portfolio. So I do own a fair amount of dividend payers but it's not only what I own. Um, I still stand by what I said in terms of temperament. Um, the reality is, I know you explained it really clearly, but for some people, it gets emotional. And I, you know, I've heard it before where they'll see, you know, they buy high and they sell low because they panic. And that dividend can prevent them from doing that exactly. I think it just comes more to knowing yourself. If you think you might be, you know, uh, have the propensity of doing that, um, then maybe that's a strategy you would think. But in terms of total returns, you have to to keep in mind that you you know there's a good chance you might underperform the market because you're too focused on dividend in nature. Because there's like you said, there's other things that companies can do with the capital, uh, including buybacks. Right? I think that's one you didn't mention as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Don't hear what I'm not saying here because you can you can be trying to optimize your portfolio for income. And then in that case, you're probably going to want to own a basket like you have on the Patreon page where you talk about like, you know, your parents' uh, model portfolio and what you would do if you were in their situation. That's an entirely different nuanced discussion. And that's why this stuff is always nuanced. But you said you're 33. Um, so you're just a young chap, you know, um, lots of, you focus on total return, not just dividends. And, um, you know, none of this is investment advice. Always make your own decision. If you're, if you're, a, you know, a, I'm, I invest in stocks that pay dividends. You know, Warren Buffett loves dividend paying stocks, but you know what he doesn't do with Berkshire Hathaway? Pay a dividend. He will not do it um, because he knows that he can reinvest his shareholders' money at higher compound returns than they can. Um, and that's why, you're inv that's why you're giving your capital to Warren Buffett, is so that he doesn't distribute it back to you. Um, that being said, he owns tons of dividend pairs. He talks about it. The latest shareholder letter he opened with, it sure does feel nice to receive a couple billion dollars in cash from Coca-Cola and American Express. Thank you very much. Check, please. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Yeah. And now to just finish on the uh, the question here. So you asked about VCN versus TTP. So I, I looked at both of them. They look very similar in terms of holdings. So they kind of track the Canadian market. They follow different indices, but they're very, very similar. I mean, it's hard to be that much different when you kind of track the Canadian stock market because there's just not that many names. Um, the question you'll have to ask yourself is what percentage of your portfolio you want to allocate to Canadian stocks because, you know, here are some things to consider. Like both ETFs have the same fees at 0.05%. Both have large allocation to financials, 30% plus, and energy, 17% plus. They provide a lot of exposure to the Canadian economy as a whole. Yes, some of the companies are, you know, diversified internationally, but there's a lot of banks in there. And, you know, even the most, you know, RBC still has gets a lot of their revenues in Canada. So that's something to keep in mind, whether you should diversify in an S&P 500 ETF. 
I mean, it really depends with, you know, do you want to diversify outside of Canada and having some exposure to the U.S. stock market and global stock market because there's a lot more global businesses that are listed on the S&P 500 compared to Canada. Um, and there's other types of ETFs too, right? You can go to emerging markets. You can go to more mature uh, developed markets that are outside the U.S. and Canada. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do, but you know it's up to you for vcn and ttp but they're almost identical so i mean there's nothing wrong i guess they're the same fees uh but yeah that's kind of my take on that uh, the things i would consider if i'm looking to diversify outside of a certain etf that i own uh, you know it sounds like you own a decent chunk in those etfs keep it simple and keep the fees low um beyond that it's splitting hairs a bit usually yeah mm-hmm. usually uh, thanks for listening to the pod, everyone. Appreciate uh, everyone's support. I think that was a good one. Listener questions. Uh, sometimes we get fiery a little bit. Uh, I, I hope everyone liked the luck segment. I've been uh, I've been scheming that one for a little bit. And uh, the the piece you can read from Andreas and Horowitz is called "Luck and the Entrepreneur." Of course, their their view is on venture capital and how it relates to entrepreneurship and how founders can put themselves into recognizing good fortune and directed motion versus just, you know, blind luck. Uh, like the, the Airbnb guys, they put themselves in a position to receive lots of good luck when they're like, hey, let's steal all of Craigslist customers. You know, that just didn't happen out of pure chance. You know, they put themselves in an opportunity to succeed and the list goes on and on. So, it can be related to your investment portfolio as well. Simone, I'm going to go, uh, you see this, you see this bird's nest on my hair. I need to go get you got a haircut. Yeah, I have one on Friday. <laughs> Do as well, but I have uh, less hair than you and I. I'm probably, oh man, I hope people enjoyed it because this was our third episode uh, in a row. So we've been recording since, uh, it's like past four and recording since one. So uh, it's been a yeah. little bit of a grind, but hopefully we still brought it for this episode because this was our last one. Show yeah. goes on, baby. Yeah, exactly. Show goes mm-hmm. on. Now I'm going to go smash a workout. Maybe jump at the pool, get a uh, get a haircut because this is uh, out of control. I'll go. I'll go do some snow thing. angels, but yeah, to each our own. Snow <laughs> <laughs> angels. Oh man, hey, well, shoveling's always a killer workout. Oh no, I mean, it hasn't. Are you a snowblower guy or a shovel guy? Shovel guy, or but both. I have the big scoop, so it's not uh, it's not nice. too bad on my back. But uh, I think uh, next house we buy, if we have our driveway's not that long. The issue is okay. we have a big backyard for pretty central mm. and um yeah. the dog so i will literally shovel a path around the yard for him so he can go do his business um because nice. leroy is a he's a small little guy so um he doesn't do well if there's more than like five centimeters of snow he kind of sinks in so <laughs> <laughs> dogs in snow it's just something you just incredible to see uh it's just like a basket of cuteness dogs in snow Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days, everyone. If you have not uh, picked up a paid plan of stratosphere.io, take 15% off with code TCI. Uh, Caps, low caps, doesn't matter. Uh, Code TCI. That'll give you unlimited watch list items, data going back all the way to 35 years. Uh, Notifications. This is the biggest thing that we've done recently if you haven't been on the app lately. So like I have my watch list here and I got a bunch of press releases came in that just said CrowdStrike's reporting. They just reported earnings. Uh, you know, Costco recently reported, Axon recently reported. So I'm getting a list. It makes the podcast research obviously very easy. But if you're managing your own portfolio, you're going to get notifications on th- what's happening inside your portfolio. So uh, go ahead, uh, get 15% off with code TCI. We'll see you in a few days, folks. Take care. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.